Welcome to Raising Equity. We decided amidst the sheltering in place and the self-distancing that we would do a series of conversations within the pandemic. So I'm, I'm loosely calling this podcasting amidst the pandemic. And it really is to try to bring some light to what I see is happening. And it's interesting, Raising Equity is all about being adults in the lives of children that help them to understand themselves and others and systems of inequity so that they can be the change that we want to see in the world. We're seeing a lot of change happening, change happening abruptly, change that we never thought possible. And it's shining a light on a lot of the inequities that existed before the pandemic. And so I thought it'd be interesting to have a series of conversations with different people who see things from different perspectives. And the first person that we're going to talk to is a friend of mine, Dr. Jackie Jones is a physician in South Carolina, Columbia, South Carolina, and I thought it would be interesting to talk to her because I know that she's committed to, to understanding health disparities and social determinants of health, which are basically those things about who we are and where we live and the space and place that impacts our access to health care and our health and well-being. But also, she's on the front lines. She's still actively seeing patients amidst this pandemic. And so I'm really appreciative that she was willing to take some time out of her busy schedule and talk with us. So welcome, Dr. Jones. Thank you. So I want to give you a chance to just talk a little bit um, about not only your, your practice, but like how you're doing in the midst of this. So how are you doing? I think there's two, two answers to that. As a doctor, I think I'm doing fine because my role is defined for me. As a everyday human being, I am terrified and very nervous and stressed out about how the next weeks and months are going to, you know, occur because uh, COVID-19 has, you know, become very real for all of us. So I think just like everyone else, I'm nervous and anxious to see what's going to happen day after day. Yeah, I imagine it might be hard to to turn that off, that fear that you have as a as a private citizen. Yes and no. I think when I come home or when I leave the clinic, I think everything sets in. I think about, oh, what do I need when I get home? Do I have, en do I have enough toilet tissue? Because I wasn't out, you know, in the line with everybody else. Like, am I going to make it? Uh, is it going to be a, a four square month or do I get to wrap my hand? <laughs> <laughs> it's, I mean, it's serious. Like, I'm like, man, I sure hope I got enough tissue. Um but in the clinic, I think once you get there and, you know, you've had your, you know, your morning huddles and the patients are coming in, it's uh, probably an easier day for me. Like I check Facebook every now and then. So I see that there have been 50, uh, you know, special report. OK, everybody's tuned in. I miss all of that because I have patients. So I've been seeing patients all day. I get home and the news is old. Uh, everything has gone by me and I've just been in pay, you know, been doing patient care. So I think the workday is maybe a little bit easier, but I feel more tired. If I were honest this week, I am exhausted every day when I get home. And I just think it's the mental exercise of trying to figure out, you know, what to tell people, what to tell myself, what to tell my friends and family. It's a lot. Yeah, I imagine. And, you know, you mentioned something. I just posted a, a kind of how to take care of yourself, like mental health not physical health, not my kind of doctor, right? But my kind of doctor of mental health. 
and helping people think about like, what do you need to do? And one of the things I said is you need to limit your exposure to taking in news and information. And that in some ways, like you said, you're protected from some of that anxiety because you're not getting the constant barrage of Twitter notifications, Instagram, Facebook, you know, all the news channels, the this governor's speaking and the president is speaking and that is happening nonstop. And so you're in a way buffered from that because I'm sure, like you said, when you get into the clinic, it's all about work. Yes. So whatever I read from day to day, most days is the updates I'm getting from my healthcare, you know, company um, saying, here's your update for today. This is what you need to know. Uh, here's how you order that test. Here's how you can do these things. And so I know that COVID is ever evolving and I catch some of that. I'm also reading, I want the PDF copy of the report because I can't, I don't understand it in meme language or Facebook post language. So sometimes I'm at home and I'm reading the actual report and trying to make sense of that. But honestly, my exposure to what's happening on CNN or MSNBC or Fox News or any of those, you know, networks is kind of limited because I still got notes to write. I still have labs to check. I've got my own updates, you know, I've got my own, you know, uh, programs and, you know, procedures that are ever evolving that I'm just trying to keep up with. That is most of my day. Mm -hmm. So let's take a little digression. Uh, I think about you say potato, I say potato. I've heard people say COVID, COVID. What, how do you pronounce this thing? Listen, I don't know. COVID, I don't know. Um, nobody's confused if you walked up and said COVID or COVID. So, okay. you know, okay. who knows? I've been saying COVID. Is that it? Is it COVID? I don't COVID know. 19? I thought I'd ask you as a professional. COVID is what I've been calling it. What? And no one has corrected me. So if I'm out here in these streets saying it incorrectly, <laughs> then I blame somebody else because I've been saying COVID for weeks now and no one has said anything. Um, who knows what that means? I've been saying COVID-19. Okay. And so before it all hit the fan, did you see it coming? Like as a medical professional, were you all watching it in China when we started to hear the news earlier? So yes and no. I will not pretend that I anticipated a pandemic. But when Fair it enough. first Fair hit enough. in China, um, you think about SARS, you think about, you know, how... Um, how easily we can travel now from one thing to the next. You know, my brother uh, just recently retired from the Navy. He was a, a, a U.S. captain in the in the Navy and a nurse by profession. So I'm pretty sure that I remember talking to him at some point saying like, oh, man, this could get really bad because, you know, if it's spreading pretty silently and, you know, all these things hit. And I want to say when the first couple cases hit, I thought this might get bad. Didn't, you know, say anything else in my mind. But when the first reports happened, I remember reading an article from an epidemiologist that said, you know, uh, the novel coronavirus is going to um, infect about 70 percent of the world's population. I remember reading that weeks ago and having a conversation with a friend saying, like, listen, like, that's a big deal. Not that 70 percent of the world's population is going to die, but. 70% of us are going to get it. And I thought, well, that's frightening. Um, so I think I was a little nervous earlier than most people, but I did not think that we would be, you know, 
quarantining states, you know, social isolation, you know, having mandatory, you know, shutdowns so that we can try to get people to help us slow down uh, the spread of it. Right, right. This whole idea of flattening the curve. Yeah. Right. And for those who don't know, epidemiologists are public health professionals who study population health. And so rather than focusing on individuals, they focus on like the large population and look at trends in, in that way rather than hone in on individual cases. Right. Yeah. So that's, I mean, you know, now that we're here, it's it's all very scary. Um, people are afraid. Doctors are afraid. Staffs are afraid. You know, people have kids. Um, it's, a, it's a big deal. But no, I did not. I cannot tell you that I thought I would be here at this very moment. Mm-hmm. Um, I, just, I was scared probably earlier than most. But... Um, I was not in the front saying, you know, let me predict what's going to happen right, right right now. How has it changed your day-to-day work? Because you do, you, you do outpatient work, correct? I do. I'm an outpatient um, primary care doctor. Mm-hmm. So is, are you seeing people come in with symptoms? How is it, how is it impacting your day-to-day work? So, you know, it's, it's interesting that you asked that. I will tell you that the way I practice today in my clinic is vastly different from how I was practicing on Monday. It has changed that much. Really? So um, in the beginning we were, you know, so my clinic is a, a, a standard primary care office. We do not have negative pressure rooms. We are not equipped with fancy equipment. We are really designed to do bread and butter primary care. We can do some procedures, things like that, but that's pretty standard. So when this first started, um, uh, maybe a couple months ago, I remember being one of, you know, a small group of doctors and uh, staff and nurses, a medical, medical assistants and nurses that were fitted for an N95 mask. Again, this is something that's coming down the pipeline. If you run into this case, here's how you do. We kind of went back through the whole thing. And I think at that time we thought we might get a couple cases. So here's what you are. We got one, you know, one small, you know, survival kit and that was it. Um, but we were business as usual. Then COVID really hit. So then we convert it. And so um, my my um, health system has a drive through testing. So okay. when we okay. came back to work this week, we were kind of able to do some phone screenings to say, OK, you are screening positive for, you know, symptoms. And here's what we need to do next, which, you know, started to direct traffic in a very concentrated way to the right you know area um, to now I can do telephone clinic visits which I could not have done a week ago. And now why couldn't you have done that? Insurance wouldn't let you or that just wasn't common practice? So insurance wouldn't let you, you know, you've got to, you know, the all of the many boards and, you know, departments of whomever have to approve it. It's got to be billable. You know, we're not talking about those things. Like, how do you bill for it? What counts? What needs to be documented? And we just weren't doing it like that. So now, you know, we're rapidly moving to, you know, a situation where we're trying to keep people safe, both ourselves and everyone else to say, maybe we can take care of this for now over the phone. 
And we'll probably move to, you know, um, telemedicine, which is not new, but new for some clinics where we kind of do video chats like we're doing now to say, let's see what ails you. Let me hear your symptoms. Let me ask my questions. You know, let me see what vitals you can give me from your home or whatever facility you're in and go from there. We went from everybody I see is somebody I see face to face on Monday to virtual clinic visits by Friday. Hmm. That rapid. And that's the that thing rap. that has that has gotten me really intrigued about this time because there's shifts that are so drastic that we never could have imagined making. Like hard lifts <laughs> that we could have never we would have said, "Oh no, 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 it's going to take years to do that." Exactly. And we just did it like you said in a matter of days. Just like that. And in some ways, it's amazing because it makes you think, "What else could we do if we just decided to do it?" Right. And I and I'm going to tread carefully because I value the the benefit of being able to chew on it and process it a little bit. Mm -hmm. But it does expose that in even in healthcare, when we kind of describe ourselves as these big ships that take a lot, lots of things to happen to move, we can become very uh, flexible and agile and, you know, to make it work to save lives for patient care, we can do some pretty amazing things. So I'm like, okay, you know, it can be done. Um, and, you know, shout out to all the doctors and nurses and, you know, MAs and front staff that are kind of hanging in there and doing it. You know, I want them to be safe too. I've got, you know, I've got people who, you know, don't know anything about, COVID, Corona, flu, gastroenteritis, you know, anything that's happening in the back rooms that are simply, you know, greeting people that are coming through the door, taking their information, getting them checked in and they're scared, you know, they're doing anything too. So it's kind of nice to be able to go to the front to say, hey, listen, this is what we're doing. This is how we're protecting me and you. And we're, you know, trying to direct some traffic and all these things. And so this is why I need you to come to work next week and the week after that and the week after that, because my fear is that people will start jumping ship if they think that we're not doing anything to protect them. So I am happy that we are moving this fast. Um, it's helped a lot. Um, it keeps the older people at home. It keeps healthier people that may be asymptomatic but contagious anyway at home. Um, and it keeps me protected in an environment where we don't have that many masks. We don't have that many gowns. We don't have that many, you know, facial guards and all these things that are running, you know, low. Um, it kind of helps protect the whole system. So for that, I'm fortunate. Yeah. So I was going to ask you, I asked people on Instagram and Facebook if they had questions for you. I mentioned okay. that I was starting a podcast. And one of the questions that someone submitted relates to what you were saying. If you are relatively healthy and you start to have symptoms that seem to match the virus, do you stay home and try to manage them the best you can? You stay home and you call your primary care doctor. So stay home and call. So don't just wait till it gets bad. Right. I don't think any of us are asking you to wait till you hear death knocking at the door to say, I've been home for as long as I can. Somebody come save me. But if you are home and you're relatively healthy, you don't have any, you know, you, your kidneys work, you don't have diabetes, you don't have lung disease, you know, you don't have, you know, any autoimmune dysfunction. That's not formally on the list. So don't quote me on that. But you don't have any chronic diseases that you're concerned about. Call, see um, what 
is and is not, you know, happening. And then we can make a decision. So we've all got decision trees in our clinics where we're kind of walking through questions to say, is this a symptom? Is that a symptom? Do you have a fever? Do you have a cough? Are you short of breath? Do you have nausea, vomiting? Are you, do you have diarrhea? How long have the symptoms been? You know, and we can make a decision about whether or not you need to report to a hospital, mm-hmm. uh, come into a clinic to be swabbed. Do you need to go through a drive through clinic, which are popping up? You know, um, what we need to do from that point. But what we really want people to do is first step, stay home, which I know is frustrating because I did come home with enough time to turn on the news very briefly and hear the frustration about who gets tested, who doesn't get tested. You know, how does Idris Elba get tested? But, you know, you know, my grandma can't get tested. You know, what do I do with that? I, I understand the frustrations. Um, and yes, it's true that the tests are limited, you know, even in my area, the tests are limited. So staying home and calling a physician to ask some questions is the best first step. Okay. Okay. That's good to know. I mean, I know there is a lot of frustration over the testing in Missouri. I think the numbers were something like we were testing 12 per million people in our state, which is abysmal where other places are testing other countries were testing like hundreds of people per million. We right. are, we're just not testing. And so part of me feels like I, if something happened, I wouldn't stress about the test. I would be more stressing about managing the symptoms. And that's just me because I have a kid who has underlying respiratory issues. So I'm like, you wheezing? Can you breathe? Because that's what I'm worried about, whether this comes back positive or not. <laughs> right, right. I mean, so for me, I tend to be a very practical doctor, right? So whether or not I can confirm or deny that you have COVID-19 or influenza or parainfluenza or whatever vibe, because there's so many, we're, we're still in the middle of, Blue you season. know, what's still a, a healthy viral season. So there's lots of things out there to catch that can, you know, manifest the same symptoms as COVID-19. I am concerned about your symptoms. Like we still, even after you become positive, we are on the hook for treating your symptoms, which is often cough, fever, shortness of breath and all these things. Now, what we're hoping is that most people will remain stable and symptoms will resolve. You will get better and you keep going. But I'm like you, like I'm concerned for all the asthmatics. Yep. I don't know what it means now. You know, I don't have the to me. You know, and it's always relative, right? Because I'm sure somebody's saying, I didn't, I wouldn't want to do your job. Well, I don't want to do the intensive job in the ICU. Like, mm-hmm. I don't want to manage vents. And I don't want to be the pulmonologist to have to figure out how we make your lungs work better. So I'm always thinking about my asthma patients, my patients with COPD, my smokers who don't know that they have emphysema or COPD or some obstructive lung disease. I'm always concerned, like... If you get sick and you get developed this viral pneumonia, um, which I cannot give you antibiotics for because this is a virus, um, what do we do? Yeah. And that you bring up a good point because I've seen these memes and I thought I was alone. That, but like we're at that age where we're telling our parents and older people, stay home. Stay home. Stay home. Yes. Stay home. Listen, I was laughing. I, not that my mother did not know. I was on the phone with my mother and I was like, you know, on the news when they're saying older, older Americans need to stay at home. 
they were talking about you. So she was laughing like me. Are they talking about me? But I'm like, yes, like I am telling my mother, my friend's parents, stay at home. Stay like home. nobody has time to be stressed about you falling out. You know, my mother lives in Chicago. So um, if something were to happen, I cannot get to her. Um, I am in a position at this moment where stepping away from my job becomes very difficult. You know, I leave a gap either way. I leave a gap for a parent who needs me. I leave a gap in a clinic that needs me. So, you know, I don't have time for any sick parents. My mother is in the house. We hope. We right. No, she's in the house. I FaceTime her, right? Okay. So okay. in the beginning, she was not in the house because she definitely let it slip that she went to Bible study because she was like, somebody was coughing behind me in Bible study. They're like, ma'am, why were you in Bible study? Like, what are we doing? So, you know, she's at home now though. How about my parents? My parents in church. Yes. Yes. I so my parents spring break is right now, and they wanted all four of the boys. And I was just saying, I don't know. I just don't feel right sending children to you because <laughs> it just doesn't feel right. And I think, I think there were, I think my mom had her feelings hurt a little bit because we kind of made the decision for them. So, you know, we said, we, we just, we love you too much. We don't want anything to happen. Right. We don't right. want your recovery time to be longer at best and at worst, something, right. right? So then Saturday night comes along. Or no, there was a meeting that was happening at church. There was a whole bunch right. of pastors that were coming from all over the area. And we were like, um, no, ma'am. No, ma'am. Because all those pastors, we had just heard about the the priest out in D.C. that had given oh, communion. Yeah. Right? And like, yes. Exposed yeah. all those people. Yeah, I read that. So she didn't go to the meeting. But then the next day or for church, I said, y'all aren't going to church, are you? And they're like, but your dad's the liturgist. I was like, no. So, someone else can, can, what do you call it? Liturge can be a liturgist. Right. <laughs> and how about how about we said no? I said very plainly, like, you don't need to go. The next morning, my sister saw on Facebook Live the pulpit, and my dad was sitting there, and she circled him and took a screenshot and put it on Marco Polo. We didn't hear from my parents for two days. They watched our <laughs> right. polos and did not reply. <laughs> Listen, you know, I don't think I heard black folks so animated about COVID-19 until this past Sunday when, you know, we we put Jesus to the test on Sunday. Like, who's going? The saints and ain'ts. Are you going to church or are you not? You know, are you covered in the blood or are you backsliding? And I'm like, you know, I, I'm amused. I'm a preacher's kid. So my, my father was a preacher. I grew up in church. Like, I love church. Um... But I'm always amused at all the many layers and complications of I'm always amused and layers at the complication of religion, particularly black people in the church. So, you know, I've had to stop myself from participating on Facebook in the conversations about church because I don't want to offend anyone. And I've had to learn that as a doctor, having an opinion in public about what you're doing, especially if it relates directly to your healthcare or not, matters. It has a way. And I'm just out here to deliver jokes sometimes, so I have to keep them to myself. But I'm like, you know, um, I think that you can uh, attest your faith firmly and uh, prove that you and Jesus are down like four flat tires and not go to church. Just just for this small period, you know, um, 
the blood has covered you and you know i'm glad that it has but nobody has time for your 65 year old self to be in church no at this moment um do you think it's so i have heard of churches that are saying they're still going to have service this sunday and in missouri they said that this 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 uh ban or this you know the guideline around about around size of groups that churches are exempt you know this is the complication about being an american we have such liberties to interpret suggestions and guidelines Mm -hmm. and um it can be as a healthcare professional is frustrating as a layman i'm like okay well you know this is what we're gonna do COVID is contagious COVID is quite contagious um, you know, if I remember right, I think, you know, somebody had a graph somewhere that, um, I almost touched my face. I didn't do it though. Um, <laughs> COVID had a, had a graph somewhere about where the contagion lay. And I think it was in front of smallpox. Now we're not old enough to remember when smallpox was a thing, but I read the textbook. I remember we were terrified of catching smallpox. Like, well, they gave it everybody to was terrified. And blankets. Exactly. So it was, it's more contagious than that. And so, you know, I I just. More wine, please. I've got my wine. I didn't know it was more contagious than smallpox. I'm serious. Like, you know, if I'm misquoting that, then somebody will get on your Instagram and be like, actually, and they'll put a little link. We'll all be educated. So I don't care about, you know, being corrected. Like, by all means, you know, search the Internet to the end to educate us all. But I was looking at that and I'm like, wow, this is like really contagious. So, no, I don't, you know, I don't think that, I don't think it's a wise decision to not socially isolate. Let me say that as a physician. I am, I am on, I am on the mark by being very firm that I think everybody needs to remain at home as much as possible and go outside for, you know, the essential items. Now, that does not mean you cannot run alone or run with one or two other people or, you know, step outside to exercise in your backyard or, you know, outside of your, your home. You know, we don't want people just, you know, you know, barricaded in forever, but I just don't know um, why we feel the need to be so aggressive um, and roll up in a church every Sunday, you know, to, to prove something that I think if you're telling me, if I hear you right, if you're telling me that you have been this way for all your life. I do not think that a Sunday or two or, or you know, obviously longer than that, that, that spending a couple months, you know, not in the brick and mortar walls of the church is going to, you know, change your faith in any way. Okay. Um, but that's, that's that's a hard case. To, like, it's a hard thing to sell to people who are very adamant that they're going to church. But it's not just I church. I wish they wouldn't church. know. It's church. It's it's bars. It's beaches. Right. Like people get real. Right. You're right. I mean, people as Americans, we don't like anyone to tell us what we can't do because then we're going right. to be like, hold my beer. I'm going to go do it. Right. And that was something I was telling one of my friends. So when this started to get really bad, I think one of the things that gave me palpations, palpitations um, was that I am always scared that Americans have this 
or just, you know, people in general. I won't say just Americans. Mm, are you, if you're about to talk about arrogance or hubris, it's Americans that have it in large doses. That feel this need to do it exactly the way they want to do it, no matter what. So I was always very concerned that if we started saying, don't go outside, don't go to the beach, don't go to church, don't go to insert whatever that is, that people were going to start saying, oh, absolutely not. It's my right to do this thing. And I'm going to go because I feel safe. And, you know, one of the things that I think the Internet, social media, you know, in our modern you know, times has done is allow us to rely um, poorly so on my gut feeling, like all this emphasis on your gut. I feel like I'm going to be all right. So let me do this thing. I, I feel like there's enough space on the beach that I don't have to, you know, not go. So let me go do this thing. I feel like in church, because that's where I'm spiritually fed and that's where I feel renewed and I feel good when I'm there. That also means that my protection is going to be there too. And that's just not how illness works. So I see it slightly different rather than it has allowed us to trust our gut too much. Cause I, I think that there's some ways in which it has obscured us actually listening to that, that voice. That voice. I think it's, it, it has allowed us to, to disregard science so much that we don't realize how powerful data and evidence like data is is real and people be like oh but you can make the data say whatever you want mm, it yeah. can inform you it can inform this you it can true. help guide your decision making actually so this is another question someone submitted to me speaking of like how contagious this virus is if someone they asked if someone in your household gets it is it inevitable that everyone's going to get it? Because like with the flu, it's not inevitable. With a cold, it's not inevitable. But this is so contagious. Can you quarantine them and not get it? And I will just preface this with I had one of Avery's counselors at school. We happened to be talking last Wednesday and we were talk we, we knew things were shifting. And and I, I was saying because my university had already said that we were shifting online. I was saying I don't think the kids are coming back after spring break. And she was talking about how she's one to catch everything. And she was the first case of H1N1 at her university. Oh, and she remembers God. being just in a matter of minutes, just knocked out. And she was sent back home. And she said her parents put her in the room. And every time they would open the door that would get to give her food, they would spray Lysol and put the food oh, through. Right. And then Slide. And every time she'd have to go to the bathroom, she'd have to open the door, spray Lysol in the hallway, run through the Lysol, go into the bathroom, come back out of the bathroom, spray Lysol, run back through the Lysol and get back in the room. But no one else caught it. They're not wrong. I will tell you what I have been telling my friends, family, patients. Um, <clears throat> if someone in your home is suspicious of having COVID-19 or if they, you know, have been, have a confirmed case, but they are mild. I do not think that they should be sharing common uh, areas with the healthier people in the house. They really do need to be quarantined to themselves and as much as we can have them have their own space. Now, I recognize that I am talking to people who have one bathroom in the home that everyone has to use. 
and that becomes a little tricky. But if if it were the most ideal situation, they need their own room and their own bathroom, their own corner of the world, and somebody can deliver food and drink and entertainment to them. But they need to kind of be on their own and, and, and by themselves because it's so contagious and the quarters in the home are so close that I can't say that the whole house isn't infected. There is a case of a family that I I don't, there's a case of, it's like seven of them. The Jer- New Jersey family? Yeah. I read that and that we, that was, it really got me because it was a family and the matriarch, the grandmother, she had like 11 kids and 25 grandkids and they had family dinner. They had family dinner and they invited a family friend and that family friend was the first, ver- first death of the virus in New Jersey. Right. So you imagine this like big Irish Catholic family having this family gathering, passing food around the table and passing this virus. Unknowingly, just not even knowing what's about to hit them. So tragic. Mm-mm. I think that if they are positive, then, um, well, one, call your physician, call your primary care doctor who will also give you very specific instructions. But overall, that person needs to be quarantined in a location by themselves. They should not be set, be sharing common space with the rest of the house. Okay. So let's talk a little bit about how this pandemic has shown a light on the inequities that, that already existed, that you're well aware of in the medical field. Yeah. So let me say this. So I am in the, in the area that I'm in, um, my, my population looks a little different than maybe the population that I trained in. So I am from Chicago, Illinois. I trained at Cook County Hospital, which is large. My clinic was in Inglewood on the south side of Chicago. So, you know, we're talking about large populations, uh, heavily African-American, lots of Medicaid, some Medicare, some uninsured, some underinsured, you know, populations. And it is really hard sometimes when you think about access to care. So my current population looks a little different, but there are still problems with access to care. Um, The... I think as a primary care doctor, one of the things for me personally that I'm thinking about is all the people who are at risk. So I laugh sometimes because I say, man, I got all the way to Columbia, South Carolina and Cook County has followed me down here because my patient population is having the same you know, problems with diabetes, hypertension and, and chronic disease chronic kidney disease, and they've got almost the same story verbatim. Well, somebody told me I had diabetes, but I don't think that was a thing. And then they're seeing you now some two, three years later, and their diabetes is worse. So when we talk about the health disparities, my concern is that the people who have poor access are at greater risk of getting sicker because we never took care of their underlying chronic diseases. Mm. So... As a new doctor here in the area, I am seeing people who I am saying like, did you know you were diabetic? No, not only did you know you're diabetic, did you know your A1C is through the roof? And we just started, you know, trying to get that under control. So now I know that I've got poorly controlled diabetic patients in the community with COVID floating around. And every list that I see tells me that if your patient has some of these chronic diseases, they're at greater risk of having poor outcomes. So 
um, the health disparities uh, are huge. Um, I missed the NAACP uh, call that um, went on, but I got to read a little bit of the article that was talking about, you know, health disparities and why they thought that African-Americans were going to fare poorly uh, in the whole, you know, COVID pandemic. And it really boils back down to we don't have a good control of morbid obesity, diabetes, hypertension, chronic kidney disease, lung disease, tobacco use. We were having a hard time getting control over that before COVID hit, you know, the continental United States. And now they're just kind of these like little red beacons, like come get me and take me out. Like they're just flashing, like I'm easy to take down if you infect me. And so I think that that keeps me up probably more than anything. Like we never fixed the problems. And so now we've got all these kind of, you know, wounded people, um, quote unquote, not literally wounded, but just, you know, at a disadvantage if they get infected and there's no, you know, good. And, and on top of listening to Facebook and hearing people say, uh, it's a, you know, this is, this is not real. I don't believe it. It's not happening to me. Hey, somebody, you know, show me if any of my friends have it, say, I see, look, none of my friends have it. So it's not real. And my fear is that not only is it real, some of you are undiagnosed or underdiagnosed for your chronic diseases. And when it hits, particularly African-Americans, black people, we're going down fast. And that is very terrifying, whether it be in Chicago, uh, South Carolina, Texas, Florida, anywhere. I think every doctor, every primary care doctor who takes care of underserved patients is probably sweating about that right now. Well, and what's important, I think, for people to realize is these things around like hypertension and diabetes and obesity, like they're there are risk factors that can that are higher in the United States across like compared to other countries, if I'm understanding correctly, and then disproportionately in black and brown folks and folks who have lower SES in the United States. And a lot of that is about access to care. Right. And what's scary is, like you said, is that if that we didn't do something about it before, almost because it's like we blame people for their individual experiences right. like it's your fault right right and 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 i'm i'm not here to point blame there's lots of reasons why people get delayed to care there's lots of people lots of reasons why people don't want to take medicine they hear things you know they see commercials like it it is you know facebook instagram tweets you know the commercials have made um made it scary how resistant to care people can be. So, you know, I have patients that are like, oh, I stopped taking my diabetes medicine because I saw some commercial and they said that uh, this this medicine was bad for your kidneys. And I'm like, well, who is they? You know, they on the TV. And I'm like, well, I, you know, how do you fight against they? Like, right. if I right. find out who they is, like, I swear to you, I got beef with they because they is like running it so you know we are already having a hard time getting people to take their medicine to control their chronic diseases and now and then on top of that some of them have not seen a haven't seen a a, a physician i saw patients today that were saying i have not seen a doctor in years you are the first primary care doctor that i've seen and 
some emergency room or some urgent care clinic finally said, no, I will not refill this medication for you. You need to go find a primary care doctor. And now they're here, but they're here with poorly controlled blood pressures because they have not had medicine in months. You know, the blood pressure's through the roof and they could not get to it because they didn't have a primary care doctor. That's more scary is that we keep saying on the news, if you have these symptoms, call your PCP. What if you don't have one? What if you don't have one? And there is the discrepancy because access to care in every state is an issue. We don't have we don't have enough primary care doctors that everybody has a primary care doctor right oh, now. Oh, I didn't know there was a shortage of PCPs. See, that's there me. Are. That's me and my privilege. Like I didn't even know. There are, there are tons of people. I mean, even, even where I am and I'm seeing people who are insured, who are well-insured, who have jobs. Um, even they are complaining with insurance. Hmm. It took me months to see you. I have been trying to get to see a primary care doctor. I have been looking for one for a year. I have been looking for one for a couple years. I've been looking for one for months. And even after I found you, my appointment, I called in, I don't know, December, and I was scheduled for March. Whoa, I didn't realize the shortage. And you know, it's interesting. So there's, we're talking about access, whether you have insurance or not, but then we're also talking about access. So whether you can get an appointment and get in. And I think about it, like for my PCP, I have insurance, but I also know them. Right. Right. And right. so I, that's like another level of another layer of privilege of having the insurance access and then like the personal access. But then there's this thing around mistrust. So you talk about like people saying, oh, they said this is bad for my kidneys. Like I'm imagining that was some like a uh, class action lawsuit that someone was trying to get someone to sign up for or something. Right. But that they are so easily they're so easily swayed to mistrust. Right. And I, I do know that like as a as a black woman who has children, there have been times where I've taken my children into the medical system and I've been looked at in ways that where people made assumptions about who I was or my capacity. And it's impacted right. my trust of their primary care physician. Like whereas like I know my personal one for theirs, I know I'm like, oh yeah, I I felt that mistrust in a way that I never had felt it before. You know, you hear about it with Tuskegee experiment and other things, but to experience it personally, I'm like, oh, I see why people would, would not go back. Right. Absolutely. I have been a patient. I have, I have, you know, been able to experience what I think some patients, um, especially patients who look like me, who are uninsured or underinsured or have a different, you know, education status, a different, you know, social economic status can feel. And that has to be terrifying. You know, I can, you know, remember, um, I'll give you a prime example. I remember one time going to the emergency room. I was having stomach pain. It was after a surgery. I do not know why I was having a stomach pain. I was in so much pain. I mean, like somebody put, get me something now I'm in pain. So I go, I'm trying to explain what it is. You know, the ED doctor is nice. Um, she knows that I am a, I think I might've been a, no, I was a doctor at the time. I was a resident and I don't know why I'm having the pain, but I know it's there. I can't tell you where it's coming from. You know, we're kind of, you know, 
talking shop about what we think it may be. But either way, um, they give me morphine. I am what we call morphine naive, meaning I don't take it very often. So they didn't give me that much. And it was amazing. And I was comfortable and snoozing, like praise the Lord and pass the plate. I go get an ultrasound and, you know, she's pressing because she needs to figure out where it is. And I'm a little fluffy. I get it. And so she's trying to, you know, do her job and she does her job and that's fine. But I've been given morphine and I'm comfortable. So I am not complaining. And I remember um, uh, seeing in the note just by chance, you know, the text note saying, uh, Pressed on abdomen very hard, patient not in any pain. Now she, it's a, it's a, it's her observation that's fine. No, it's not fine. But it's also implying that maybe this person, and she doesn't know that I'm a doctor. She doesn't know that I'm in the hospital that I went to, you know, I trained in. She doesn't know anything about me, but she's kind of putting it in there as if this observation of hers makes my whole thing suspicious. You're drug seeking. And I read it and I thought, wow, you know, and yeah, the doctors that are reading it are there and they know me and they're going to you may they're going to brush it off. Maybe not going to think anything of it. You know, nothing came of it. Everything was normal. My surgical team saw me the next day. We kind of all said, I don't know what it is. Me either. I feel great now. I'm eating. I'm drinking. I went home. No problem. But I think about all the patients that come to me in the clinic frustrated because they're saying, let me tell you what happened to me when I went to that hospital. And I told those people this, this and this. And I swear to you, I told them. And then I just left because nobody was listening. Nobody believed me. They didn't get care. They didn't get anything. And so, yeah, I think we all, you know, have had those experiences. And some of us are able to articulate what it meant in in the moment and also have a platform to articulate the repercussions that could have come from that. So what if I wasn't a doctor? What if I was just, I don't know, what if I was some person on the street that had just rolled in and, you know, was speaking poorly and, you know, not making sense because I'm in so much pain that I can't really get it out. And somebody would have said, I don't know what this is. I don't know. You know, I can't find anything wrong. There's nothing wrong with her. Get her out of here. Don't give her any medicine. You know, don't admit her. She'll be fine. That's horrible. I mean, like, that's frightening. It's horrible and it's frightening. So I'm with you. Like, I I get the distrust of the healthcare system, but I do want people to know that there are good doctors out there. There are good techs out there. There are good nurses out there who are really trying to hear your story and trying to make sense and not, you know, do it. And so um, I know that being um, having disparities or being a disadvantage means you got to try hard to get in the system. But it's worth the try, because if we can get to you, we can find you in that place. We can get you well. Right. But we can't do it because they kind of come in and out. And so they jump back and forth and never get really good care. That Yeah. It, to me, it just it brings up the larger dynamics around like as I listen even to the to the presidential campaign, I'm like, this is a prime time for people to to realize how important it would be for everyone to have access to health care. Yeah. And yet we're not ready for that conversation or we don't want to let go of the system as we have it. And and not that it would be perfect, but this just seems untenable. Yeah. I don't know the answer. I'm glad that I don't have to find out the answer. I just get to practice the medicine. But um, I can tell you that 
you know, when I was at um, Cook County training, that the benefit or just seeing how people move a little bit differently when they have insurance, you know, like they it almost is like, you know, I'm legit. I'm supposed to be here mm-hmm. and I have some insurance so I can ask you a few more questions. You know, I can demand a few more things. Hold on a second. My insurance is covering this. So can you please explain this to me? And I get it. You know, um, it's almost like a ticket to to having your dignity and humanity validated. Absolutely. Which everyone should, but everyone doesn't. Right. And I tell people, you know, whether you have insurance or not, like, it's not going to matter. And I do have patients that say, no, it doesn't matter to you. But to other places that I go, it does matter when I have insurance. And so I know it's a thing because, you know, I patients unconsciously say it all the time. Well, I went over here and I had this exam, but back then I had, you know, I had um, Medicaid. But but now I'm working and I got this insurance. And so I'm trying to go back to see if they'll give me a different answer. And you think like, oh, my God, what you know, what are we doing? Because you should not think because since you've got Medicaid, I'm going to read your report differently. Or I'm going to, you know, give you a different diagnosis than I would have if you had commercial insurance. Except does it happen? It doesn't happen in my office. Right. It doesn't happen with me right. personally as a physician. But it must, you know, something's happening somewhere because I don't think people are just making it up out the blue. Like their anxieties are being driven from real experiences that we, you know, as a healthcare system have to look at and say, you know, we 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 have to own this beast and that's, that exists and that's what us. worries me really what worries me is like you said there's so many black and brown folks uninsured folks who are going to be like you said easy targets for this virus because of those right. underlying concerns that are not managed and aren't taken care of and then it's it's an extra burden on the system and i feel like our system is going to then blame them for being that extra burden on the system and it, it 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 does worry me and it makes me it's made me very aware of the privilege the class and health access healthcare access those privileges that i have that make me feel a little that help me sleep a little bit more calmly at night when things are changing so drastically and getting scary yeah especially now so you know now you know i think my fear is, you know, one of, the, one of the benefits of having your primary care doctors kind of at the front that are seeing people, are screening people, whether that be in their clinic or in a, in, in a drive-through clinic or whatever, is we're trying not to <clears throat> overpopulate the emergency rooms, which then become slowed, who then can't give report to the floor doctors and nurses and staff that need to, you know, admit patients for more care who then can't get these people onto the ICUs. And, um, you know, it's really important for everybody to have access to primary care so that we can, you know, hopefully as best we can control the bottlenecks um, and get people tested and direct traffic, right? Like that's in my mind, as a primary care doctor, that's really my job is to try the in the best way I know how to direct the traffic, to educate, you know, in a way that makes sense to the people that are coming through the door and making people understand 
who I'm asking to stay home and why I'm asking to stay home versus who I'm asking to go to the emergency room and why I'm asking versus who I think needs to get, you know, really admitted and are probably sick. Um, and with our health disparities, with our inability to provide primary care doctors to everyone, we're going to, my fear is that we're going to crash the system and we're going to, you know, like the, you know, people who have the biggest fears, you know, say, if everybody gets infected at once and nobody has a primary care doctor and we can't direct traffic so we can't tell who to stay at home and who should go in, everybody's going to rush to the emergency room or in the hospitals, um, expose other people who may not, who were not going to get sick, who then are also going to get sick and then also going to decline. And everybody's going to need an ICU bed. And a ventilator. You actually helped me think about this in a different way. Like, I feel like it's been really clear that we need to flatten the curve and we need to, we need to make sure that we don't over run our system, overburden our system because we don't have enough ventilators, right? Like that's clear. But what I hadn't what thought I had about, the piece of the puzzle that I hadn't realized, is the importance is the of importance a, primary of care a primary care physician. So that piece around a PCP, I hadn't thought about that as a critical piece of the puzzle. And that's actually something I feel like people could, could not necessarily do something about. Because like you said, there's a shortage, but could attend to, perhaps, or could think about, in addition to the fact that we don't want to overrun the ICUs, that we want to make sure that we're connected with our PCPs or if that if we don't have one and we have insurance and we can get connected with one that we do. Right. That's yes. That, I think that's I feel like that's something that hasn't been said in the broader public. Well, you know, I think right now the, all the rage is COVID and what it's going to do and respiratory failure and pneumonia and all these things. But, you know, you know, part of the reason why I'm showing up every day to work is I'm also thinking, OK, what is my role as a primary care doctor outside of directing traffic, outside of screening patients and trying to see if they. Um, I'm laughing. I'm sorry. Outside of seeing if, you know, do you have COVID? Yes or no. You know, that's a small part of my day, actually. I mean, those calls are coming in and we're taking those calls, but I am still, at least for right now. Ask me in another week, ask me another month. Everything I'm saying may change because as the population changes and the, as the sickness, you know, as COVID does its thing, this may not be the case anymore. But as of right now, when I get to work, the things that I'm thinking about with COVID in the back of my head is let's control everybody's blood pressure. Let's make sure anybody who's diabetic gets on their medicines. Let's let's talk nutrition Let's really, you know, express the need to have well-controlled, you know, numbers. Like now is not the time to go home and stay in the house all day and eat cakes and pies and come back to me with an A1C of 13. Like that's just not what we're trying to do. So a part of my role as a primary care doctor, that's not the role of the emergency room doctor. That's not really the role of the internal medicine doctor or the family medicine doctor that's working on the floors. And definitely not the role of the ICU doctor is to control the things that are controllable. We still need to do that. Because if we stop doing that, then the people who who are at risk are even at more risk if you don't have your medicines, if your blood pressure is controlled, if you blow out your kidneys in the two months because we let you walk around with blood pressures of 180 over 100 and you don't know because you don't feel it, then we've done nobody any service. As a matter of fact, 
we've done the system a disservice because what happens if that poorly controlled blood pressure turns into a stroke? Right. Right. That That's a really good point. That's a really good point. I appreciate you highlighting that. So for you, like why PCP? Why not some other area of medicine? You know, <clears throat> I think I always identify as a primary care doctor. I think in my mind, when I was dreaming about being a doctor, it was not dreaming of being a surgeon. It was dreaming about the doctor that people went to go see in the clinic, you know, located on the street, you know, where you talked about all the things that, you know, um, were concerning to you. Um, so I come from a family full of nurses. My mother is a nurse. She was a labor and delivery nurse. Um, my brother is a nurse. My father was a, a minister, a preacher, and a science teacher. So I think that um, community kind of has always been a part of, you know, the things that were discussed. And then, you know, my father died of cancer when I was a kid. So we spent a lot of time in hospitals. You know, it had gotten to a point where we were either at school doing the various mini activities because we were um always busy in athletics and different event different events or tournaments or cheerleading or basketball whatever or in the hospital and I thought man the hospital is such a cool place to be I want to be a doctor and even even as I was thinking of being a doctor in a hospital I think my mind always went to the primary care doctor in the clinic um when I went to medical school I found that I just understood primary care a little bit better um, and so it, um, I don't want to call it the path of least resistance because it was still hard, but it was the thing that I felt like I could mold myself into the easiest, if that makes sense. So, you know, that became that. I also learned that I was really good at talking to people on their level and making it make sense to them. And so I just rolled with it. I can see that. I mean, you've always been a real personable person. Um, and I remember, I remember when I met you and you were working, were you a systems analyst or a business analyst? Neither. I was working in purchasing. Were you really? Yes, I was in purchasing, but I was, I was negotiating contracts for people, product and services for, uh, a little bit on the tech side, but yeah. Okay. Uh, yeah. When we first met, that's what I was doing. Okay. But I remember meeting you and I don't know how we became friends, but I just remember you talking about having this dream of going back to med school. And what's up? What's up? I know, right? Right? Crazy. Right? And I, I don't know if you want to, I, I know my version of the story, but like, I actually think that your story is one that highlights uh, some of the dynamics around um, just how class and race and place can influence our course in life. Uh, and then like how we, how we can sometimes get pigeonholed in right. ways that, that don't fit us because of those choices. And it's not always bad, but it's right. not always what, what we and our core desire. Right. So, um, I don't know how far back you want me to go, but I'll try to, you know, walk through it. Um, so I'm, a, as you know, I'm a career changer. So I, uh, went to, uh, I grew up in Chicago. I went to Whitney Young, you know, home of Michelle Obama and, uh, then took a basketball scholarship, uh, to the university of Alabama in Tuscaloosa. 
And, and it was great. I loved being a student athlete. I loved Alabama. Everything was wonderful. And I think in my mind, I would just go. I would major in biology and I would just become a doctor. It's got to be that easy. Like, clearly it's that easy. It was not. And I can remember going to this physics class, right? So, you know, the big classrooms, 300, 400 people, everybody's quiet. You know, I'm the only person, at least it feels like, who has not read the syllabus, which you can frustratingly appreciate. I didn't read it. You know, I'm in there, you know, just winging it. I'm going to sit in the front like they told me to. Like, I'm compliant. I don't miss class. I'm not late, but I have not read the syllabus. And so we start this quiz or something, and he is going through all these stats about how so many people fail, and if you can't do this, then you might as well, you know, not do it. And I was like, ooh, that's my cue. Let me get up and let me go, right? So walked out the class. On top of that, you know, as a new athlete, you know, adjusting to college athletics is a transition. ESPN makes it sound so beautiful when they playing the music in the background and you're playing your song, but day to day, it's rough. I can't and imagine. So, oh it's my gosh. It's, it, it's a lot of work. Whether you are the first person off the bench, whether you start every day or whether you're the last man on the bench, like your day to day life as a student athlete is packed right you have to what practice you have to watch tape you have to go to school what else work out workouts training you know you got to care for your body so if you have an injury or something like that you know maybe that means you got to get there earlier so that you can get treatment and you know special therapies and maybe you got to stay a little bit after you know do you play a lot or do you play a little maybe if you don't play so much then maybe you got to stay and try to you know keep your body conditioned any event that your name is called. So there's all these responsibilities that, you know, many athletes have day to day and they're still required to perform. And people expect that they're going to perform inside and outside, you know, the classroom the same way. And um, and then you got community service, you know, you've got, you know, engagements that you've got to, you know, there's so many things. So here I am, you know, in college, you know, freshman going into, you know, sophomore and, you know, I'm not done so hot. I think in biology, I think I passed it, but, you know, I I slept through it and passed it because we had 5 a.m. practices. My coach was a fisherman. So he liked to practice early. So that 8 a.m. biology class hits a little different when you've been up since four to be be ready to the floor and practice um, at you know, 5 a.m. So here I am. I've done just okay in biology and I've dropped this physics class and I go and talk to the um, health science department because I'm like, yeah, I want to be pre-med. I want to be a doctor. And they essentially are like, you know, you know, our two semester athletes, don't always do well in careers in medicine. You know, you're urban, you know, maybe you should try something different. Wait, wait, wait. They said you're urban? Yeah, I remember that being in her sentence. And and amazing? I don't remember her name to this day. Uh, I wish I remembered her name. And, and let me be clear, my, you know, MD, you know, contemplative self remembered think about it a little differently than the 18 year old that was listening to it. I was just like, well, you know, sometimes you get them and sometimes you don't. And I had taken a business class in, um, 
like earlier in that semester and I loved it. And they had a healthcare management program, which was, it was a new major. It was small. And I thought, oh, this is great. Let me do that. So I just did that and I kept moving. And I thought, well, I'll be a health administrator. I'll just, you know, run a hospital. You know, that seems easy enough, right? No, I did my internship and discovered that the administrators were former clinicians, doctors, nurses that had switched over to the business side and were now working. I thought, oh, my God, I made a mistake. You know, what did I do? But it's time to graduate. You got to go to work. So I just have to pause as a as a professor. No, you didn't make a mistake. You weren't adequately mentored. And it it makes me so frustrated Right. Yeah, there's, I won't go. I won't go into it too far because I want you to tell your story. But I, I just want people to to realize that sometimes we talk about it's like the golden egg for a student to get this sports scholarship. And I'm not downing sports because I have so much respect for athletes and student athletes. But it it leaves you in this tough position of like having to choose which thing you're going to focus on. Right. I definitely. So let me say this. I think that I appeared to have it more together in that time than I did. I was articulate and I was vocal and I was responsible. And so I think that those things came with these assumptions. Oh, yeah, she knows what she wants. Yeah, she knows she wants to do. She don't have any problem telling anybody else what she wants. But it was a poor assumption because I'm also 20, you know, and I don't know anything. I know nothing. Right. You know, nothing. You nobody has helped you lay out your career. You've not vocalized your career to anyone. So this whole thing, I think, went under the radar. Like, I don't even think that the my my team or my academic advisor on the athletic side or anything like that was aware that I'd come in with dreams of becoming a doctor that were deflated almost before I stepped in the door and I had completely changed um changed just made a different turn left and was going a completely different path I think this whole thing happened under everyone's nose because nobody was really asking me what do you want to do? And so that's okay, now that you're here, what do you want to do? That, that honestly, that's what gets me. These assumptions that like, almost like because you're this urban black girl that you should, that not either you should be happy with where you are or that you are happy with where you are rather than like, what do you want to do and how do I help you live out your dreams? Right. 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 I agree. You know, having worked in higher education, um, as you know, um, I think I saw it differently when I got to be the academic advisor on that side. And I definitely was hard on my students, but I think I I felt the pressure of failure. That I kind of understood that there is a there is a premium advantage to getting it right on somebody else's dime when you're on a full scholarship or partial scholarship or some kind of scholarship and you're not covering the total cost of education, especially in these times, like there is some pressure to at least try to get it right. And I think that I was kind of just existing, like just going with the flow. Wasn't a, wasn't the best student, but wasn't a bad student, you know, wasn't going to miss class, was going to be on time, was going to, you know, make my study hall hours, was going to pass my courses. I think 
it was just a, you know, I think if anybody, I just don't think I was even being, it just wasn't a conscious thing. It wasn't that, and maybe that's the bigger um, crime is that no one was even thinking about it. Right. So, um, yes, no one ever had to worry that I was going to not show up for class, you know? So I think in that, in so many aspects, I was a very easy athlete to work with in that way. But also, um, nobody was challenging me to say, wait a minute, why'd you drop that class? We have tutors here. You like, can do I'm sorry. What do you mean that you're dropping it? Like, you can do this. Like, what's the issue? Like, go back to class. Like, read your syllabus. Make a plan. You know, go to the library, study, do whatever you need to do and get an air of being in that class. I don't think that I was being challenged in, in that way. Hmm. Um, and you need and, you know, you still need the grades, like whether I wanted to be a doctor or not, you're not going to medical school without the grades. Right. So right. with that, I got a business degree and graduated and, you know, went to work. So how many years was it before you were like, no, 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 really? I need to be a doctor. About two. Really? Really? About two. I thought I cannot work in this cubicle for the rest of my life. I was bored. Um, I was, I was not interested in sitting in that cubicle. I thought, man, they're going to fire me at any moment because I cannot sit still. Like I'm always up, like I'm everywhere. I'm talking to people like, Hey, how you doing? What's going on? You know, like I wanted to do everything, but sit at my desk and type emails and memos. I thought I cannot do this forever. But I did not have any money, you know, so there was all these life lessons that I did not have. I did not know how to manage my money. I did not know um, how to pay off all this debt I had acquired. I, you know, wait, wait, didn't know. I you had a full scholarship. What debt? Yeah, but you know, I'm but I am making I don't even know. It's crazy. I don't even know if I was making thirty thousand dollars when I started my first job. Oh, OK. And I'd come in with all of the IT people, right? And they were making tens of thousands of dollars more than I was. And I remember looking around thinking, okay, something has gone very wrong because I can't afford what these people are getting. And they're talking about, and they weren't even, you know, now it's funny to think about it. They weren't necessarily talking about these extravagant vacations, but just, hey, everybody, let's hop in the car. Let's go to such such for an extended weekend and let's get a hotel room and let's do all this kind of stuff. Like, I cannot afford that. And I was trying to figure out how do I live on my own, pay my own rent, cover my utilities and my cable and my car note and all the things that were coming up. And I got peanuts left after all this stuff. So I think I spent some, even though I was bored, I think I was really vested in trying to figure out like, how, do, how is everybody else making this work? Like, let me learn about money because nobody has taught me about it. I think I had taken a financial planning class in my senior year because I kind of knew that I needed to know more. But I think that that consumed year three, just trying to figure it out. What mm-hmm. is money? Why does it exist? And how to make it work for you? So what made you finally make the decision to go back? So you knew after two years, but it was some years before you went back for that degree. Yeah. Oh, because I had none of the sciences. So there were, let's see, I spent six years uh, in my first job, right? And four of those years, I want to say three or four, 
I was going to work, getting off work and going to the local community college and taking night classes. Ah, you were taking your prereqs. All the prereqs. I had none of them. I had applied to a program called MedPrep in uh, Carbondale, Illinois. And the first year I applied to it, they said, you're nice, but no, you don't have any of the sciences. So go finish the sciences and come back when you're done. So I said, okay. So I was doing that probably for three years. And then I realized like at this rate, I'm going to be 65 by the time I get into medical school. Like we just can't keep up this pace. So that's when I quit. And I ended up getting the job at Illinois State University Mm -hmm. in athletics. And that was perfect because my boss, who was amazing, um, she was a she was a, you know, supporter of women. Like I told her what I really want to do. She was on board even in the interview and was like, however we can support you, we will. You know, we just appreciate you coming to, you know, do this job for us, which I loved. And so that's how I got to taking the classes more quickly. So then I could take classes during the day in between work hours. Sometimes I'm in class with my students because I was working in the academic center. Um, So it was great. It kind of combined all the worlds. I was teaching life and study skills, which, you know, was awesome. And I was doing academic advising. So in many ways, I was kind of teaching myself as I was teaching the students, like, here's how student life works. So that's, you know, so it was three years of taking classes, you know, underground where nobody knew because, you know, the farm did not know I was, you know, doing that. And then I quit, went to Illinois State and then everybody kind of knew, you know, what the goal was. And so I think I was there for two years, two and a half years, something like that. And then eventually went on to med prep. Hmm. But that's still another two years of postback. Right. We have not hit the doors of, of med school just yet. So we've done three years of undergrad work, underground work, you know, getting just prereqs. We've done another two years of prereq work. And then we did another two years of a postback program before I saw medical school. Right. Right. I mean, that's tenacity. And so I, I wanted to tell that story because I, again, I want people to think about like the, the ways in which our systems and dynamics of oppression influence people's lives. And like you are a success story by all accounts. And yet, and still there are ways in which people's assumptions about you or their, their ideas about what your limitations were or weren't not having high expectations of you um, limited where you went. And I like, of course you're, you're tenacious and I'm so happy to see where you've landed But in some ways, it makes me really disappointed as a professor, like in higher education, that you didn't get there sooner. Yeah. And, and, you know, as I sit here sitting on these student loans and kind of reflecting, um, there is a, I don't know, you know, I'm happy to be a doctor. I'm very happy to do something that I really love. But there are moments where there are sober moments that are a little bit melancholy because you think, Man, what a great sacrifice to get here. Not that sacrifice isn't required to be a doctor, but do I think that this had to be the sacrifice? For me, no. Not from the opportunities that have been laid at my feet and, you know, the chances that were given. I think it should it should have been easier somehow. Um Maybe I would not be the doctor. Well, no, no, maybe I would not be the doctor that I am right now had there not been the challenges and the, you know, obstacles. But it was the scenic route. 
And I mean, no doubt, we will make lemonade out of lemons. We will. Yeah. And you did. And I, I, it's a beautiful and frustrating and um, cautionary tale of like, because I, I, I think about it, people often ask me, I have a younger son who wants to, he swears he wants to be in the NBA. And we've told him the stats. And, you know, I said, and yet I will support you if you want to work hard. Um, and yet I understand having taught at a Big Ten university, so Div 1 and Div 3, that there's a way in which we paint sports as like this golden ticket to an education. But in some ways, it's handcuffs. It, it, it can be. You know, it's... And I think, and I think, you know, so I have good friends. I have a, a very dear friend who um, is the head coach, University of Georgia, and I get to kind of watch her. And I think that as student athletes, we learned along the way. And I'm sure she's learned from watching people like myself. So I think we're doing it differently. Okay. So I, I look at, you know look at her and her team and her, her staff. And I kind of see the way they do it. And then I've got the pleasure of being down here in Columbia, South Carolina. So, you know, I get to watch, you know, women's basketball here and, and, you know, meet, you know, Don Staley and, you know, meet her staff and kind of get to see how they're doing it. And I think that we are changing it. Even as, you know, I was laughing about something that, you know, now if you've ever watched like a NCAA game or a SEC game, you'll hear like, oh, such and such is a senior. She'll be graduating with her master's degree. And I remember when I was in college, there were a couple of people, very few, that were somehow managing to get their master's degree by the end of their uh, four years mm. or five years of mm. eligibility. Mm. Now it's almost commonplace. So I do think from an academic standpoint, athletes are maximizing the opportunity or we've turned, you know, so something has turned on and something has kicked on. And I see more and more basketball players that are coming out and they kind of have a really good understanding about what they want to do. I think those conversations are happening. Um, so that's great to hear. I, I think that there are good things happening, you know, in athletics and, and in the in the sports. Um, and let me be clear: I'm not trying to knock athletics because right, I mean, right. I need I needed some of that discipline in my life. Like I think about, I played junior high basketball and I quit when we started to run suicides. I was like, mm, I'm done. <laughs> and my parents should have been like, No, you can't quit because you need some of that. <laughs> Right. Go back. Go back. Yeah. I'm so thankful for athletics. You know, I, I um, was telling a good friend of mine, Kelly Bond, um, she coaches at Texas A&M. And um, I was telling her that, you know, everything that I've learned about being a good doctor, I learned um, about being a bad athlete. Really? Some of that is, you know, what you do when you are facing adversities or what are you going to do when somebody has discounted, you know, your ability to be good or good enough, you know, what do you do if you're not playing? So, you know, I had those challenges as a student athlete and, you know, the way I played that hand as a 19 year old and the way I played that hand as a pre-med and a medical student were very different. 
But I kind of had enough time because, you know, I was a career changer. So I had time to reflect back on all those moments and think, you know, if I had it to do all over again, I would have done X, Y, Z. So we all do that, right? Especially athletes. Man, if I could go back, I would do X, Y, Z. And I didn't get to go back, but nothing close to simulating a high stakes environment than the act of getting into and getting through medical school and then getting into and getting through residency. Um, it is college athletics all over again. Hmm. Um, and so I was a very different athlete the next time around, even though I was not spared uh, some hardships um, and we talked about, you know, some of the stuff when I was going through it, the hardships of medical school, like it was not a cakewalk for me. There were moments where I was struggling, struggling. And, you know, it kind of became this parallel world to me, world to me where I thought, OK, so what are you going to do this time? What would you what are we doing? We were folding, we're pushing what you want to do. You're the man in the arena and you're either performing or you're not. And uh, I felt that in medical school um, and even in residency. Um, and it was a it was a better outcome. Hmm. You know, I spent a year as a chief of family medicine at the end of residency. And, um, you know, it, you know, you kind of look back when you're your chief year, looking back on the whole picture, thinking, I bet somebody somewhere was not expecting me to get into medical school, let alone end up being chief resident at Cook County Hospital. And that feels good as a as a as a black woman, as a former athlete, as a, you know, just a girl from the south side of Chicago. Like it all feels, you know, amazing. Um, so there were some lessons that I learned in athletics and I think they're doing it better. And I share my story with coaches when they ask me, I share my story with, you know, my mentees that I have, you know, um, I started teaching like, you know, board prep for step one, step two, even a little bit for step three because of my challenges that I had. And I just thought, you know, let me give it to you straight. Here's who I am. Here's how I did on the boards. You know, here were my challenges. You rolling with me or not. Some people said no. Some people said yes. And they did well. The people who said yes did very well or they made it through. I'm literally just talking to students now that I was mentoring and teaching through their boards that have matched today, like found out where they went and they matched. So literally everybody that I have worked with has now gone on to graduate from medical school, matching the residency. So that's sweet. I'll take it. Yeah. I'll take it any day. So, you know, that's beautiful. And I mean, I so appreciate you sharing your story with us because I feel like, you know, it's interesting, like we started off the conversation thinking about the pandemic and your role as a physician at this time. But I also think that it's a gift that you're willing to share like you as a physician and the story behind it and the story of you. And I think it's I think it's a beautiful full full circle because I, I have been seeing different memes go around. Uh, different kind of infographic memes, whatever you want to call it, calling us to reflect on this time. And what you said resonated with me. Like, there will be tough times. There have been tough times. This might be the first time that some of us have experienced this in our lifetime. But the question right. is, what will you learn? And what will you, what will you remember for the next challenge? 
Right. And so I so appreciate you sharing not not only your wisdom around the important role of of primary care physicians in this pandemic, but also just the importance of of tenacity, of perseverance. And like you said, how are you going to show up this time? Right. Right. Who do you want to be? It really boils down to that. Like, who are you going to be in this moment? You know, when you're the man of the arena, because everybody can be cheering for you, you know, the the it's packed full crowd you know 15,000 to stand 100,000 to stand everybody's shaking pom-poms but you've got to perform it 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 boils down to that and if you don't have the stomach for it in, in anything academics athletics you know empathy uh service you know all of these all of these things they still require you to perform under pressure yeah yeah you know Well, thank you so much for joining us. I really sincerely appreciate it. I enjoyed it. It was great. You know, as a doctor, you get a little nervous about, you know, coming online and, you know, trying to, you know, talk about healthcare and things like that. Because, you know, somebody somewhere is like, "Uh uh-uh, look, this (laughs) says here what you said is not true. But, you know, I hope that, you know, people walk away with something. Um, If they did not walk away with anything, it's that believe what you can and cannot but in this time please stay home we were not playing doctors are uh tired and they are nervous you know there are anxieties about how to keep you safe how to keep themselves safe um COVID-19 is not a hoax uh we have you know results that have come back positive in my clinic um you know the reports you know are frightening about, you know, what the outcomes could be. And if everyone could just think of community um, and stay home and stay safe and hand wash and don't touch your face, you know. As I touch my face. I know. I, I, you know, I've been working so hard. Like I saw a meme where people was like not touching their face. And I'm like, I'm trying and just, you know, kind of remember that even if you've got the best outcome, you know, the best predictable outcome, somebody else doesn't. Oh, and just I said I wasn't going to do stats, but I literally was reading something on JAMA before um, before I talked to you. And it said, I think something like 20 percent of the the um, the death in um, the United States have been between the ages of like 20 and 64 so we're, we're kind of painting this picture. And I think about that when I see the spring breaker, they're like, oh, we're safe. You know, I'm good. I'm going to live. Old people are going to die. You know, sucks for them. You lived your best life. Now was my turn. Like, no, you know, we're having we're seeing people die as young as, you know, 20 something all the way up to 64. So we're not just like, oh, if you're old, you're dead. And if you're young, you're just going to get diarrhea. No, you can die, too. And, you know, if you get sick. What we are trying to do is, you know, at least have the opportunity to try to save your life. Have the staff available to to bring you in through the emergency room, have the, you know, intensivists available to admit you to an ICU, have a bed waiting for you so that we can take care of you. We cannot do that if everyone gets sick at the same time. And that really is the whole concept of flattening the curve. We cannot take care of. 300 million sick people at once, but we can take care of people as they come in and provide the best outcome we can, but not at once. Yep. 
That's why people should stay in. That's why people have got to skip their wax appointments and their hair appointments and getting their hair cut and getting your makeup done and getting your lashes put on and getting your feet done and your nails done and all these things. Get your groceries, get your medicines, see your doctor's appointment, work from home, stay home, read a book, exercise, eat well, make COVID babies. I don't know. Like, do something. But just don't, you know, be out in the community just because. Yeah. Yeah, no, you're right. I appreciate it. Totally appreciate it. Thank you for joining us. Thank you for having me. Yeah. If folks want to follow you and hear more about you and your wonderful musings, how would how would you want them to follow you? So if you are very interested in understanding or knowing a little bit about Dr. Jones, you can follow me at Jackie J at Instagram or I am on Facebook at Amy Joe, A-M-I-J-O uh, on Facebook. And you can see me there. Awesome. Thank you. And thank you all for joining us on Raising Equity. I hope the message is clear. We want to flatten the curve. So stay home if you can. And we understand that for some people, that's not possible. And we understand that for some people, you're at an increased risk. And so we want to just be mindful of the ways in which we can be in community and help each other by staying at home. Uh, Dr. Jones mentioned (laughs) in her work and her life as an athlete, like, how are you going to, you're in the arena, how are you going to perform? It might sound dramatic, but we're in the arena right now. How are we going to perform in the midst of this pandemic? It might seem easy to stay at home. And once you do it, you realize, yeah, it's not so easy. But like, what is it that you need to do to show up for our community to flatten the curve? Hopefully tonight you learned some things about not only the role of the primary care physician within the pandemic, but also the road to becoming a primary care physician as a black woman in the United States. So join us on Raising Equity as we continue to explore questions amidst the pandemic. Thanks for joining us on Raising Equity. 